Welcome to Insight, a podcast devoted to subjects that are mostly theological and biblical, but in this series, historical. I'm your host and presenter, Gary Nation. This is the seventh of eight episodes in a series that is tracking the history of the 2nd Tennessee Volunteer Infantry, USA, from the formation of the regiment through its first major action in the Battle of Mill Springs. Southern men who fought in the Union Army in the Civil War. Don't call them Yankees. One of them, Alvis Duncan Hicks, was my ancestor, my grandmother's grandfather. So why am I telling a story about an uncelebrated unit and its unknown members? Because I believe that a life is not inconsequential just because it's without fame. Chapter 7 Moving Toward Confrontation November-December, 1861 Stalled and Frustrated November 1861 was hard on the volunteer soldiers from Tennessee. The morale of the troops that was so high after the victory at Camp Wildcat plunged dramatically. The weather was miserable, damp, and cold with no relief. About a third of the men were sick, many critically so. The promised uniforms and arms were still inexplicably held up in a bureaucratic backwater. The Tennesseans were still mostly clothed as civilians and equipped like a militia with old model weapons and paraphernalia, although some had probably picked up second-hand caps and jackets and belts and things like that through purchase or trade, and there'd be a spotty arrival of a, uh, some shoes or a shipment of coats. They stood out like misfits against the blue-clad Ohioans and Illinoisans. As late as December 8th, General Thomas sent a memo to General Buell informing him that the Tennesseans were carrying smoothbore muskets as opposed to the Springfield rifles carried by the Ohioans. Besides this, they were increasingly reinforcing the opinion of their regular army superiors that they were clamorous, unruly, and unreliable. From their own point of view, they were simply responding logically to an outrageous situation. As citizens in a democratic society, they were used to asking their leaders questions, receiving explanations from them, and requiring them to defend their decisions. Soldiers, however, don't get explanations, only orders. And all of their orders so far were perplexing to the point of madness. Move forward, make camp, be ready to march tomorrow. Hold up, the new orders now are to wait. Reinforcements will be coming in days. But reinforcements don't arrive. And now they're hearing every day about the dire situation of the patriots in East Tennessee. But not only are they forbidden to march to their relief, the army is ordered instead to pull back. Regardless of General Buell's strategic intent for the pullback, it was widely regarded on both sides of the lines as a retreat. When the rebels heard about it, they hooped and hollered and called it the Wildcat Stampede. Union troops, and not only those from Tennessee, were disgusted and bitter and despised the thought of giving up ground that they had paid for in blood. By this point, the murmuring had reached a fever pitch, and it's no exaggeration to say that the regiments were on the verge of mutiny. In fact, a near mutiny actually did take place on the night of November 13th, when garbled orders mistakenly caused the Tennessee regiments to pull out from their London camp along with the rest of Thomas's command. Apparently, it was Alban Sheff's mistake, but the men blamed Thomas and Buell. Furious with the order, many Tennesseans threw their guns on the ground and swore they would not obey it. In a letter written to Horace Maynard a week later, 
Samuel Carter gave an understated description of that day. I was intensely mortified at the hesitancy of some of our Tennesseans to move on when they found they had to take the road leading to Crab Orchard. They had off the impression we were returning to Camp Robinson to winter. But after I spoke a few words to them, they obeyed the order to march. Well, what Carter calls a few words was actually a prolonged brigade meeting in which he stood before his men and brought to bear all his skills of persuasion to keep his regiments from falling apart right then and there. Even after their brigadier prevailed upon their patience, an eyewitness account says, hundreds of them wept as they turned their backs on their homes. Carter's account continues, Many fell out during the night, and some deserted. Our losses amount to about 40 to 45. We were without transportation and were forced to leave almost the entire camp standing and every one of our tents behind. The roads were in a terrible state, and large numbers of men from the various regiments fell out on the way from sheer exhaustion. When I reached Dr. Jocelyn's, I learned for the first time we were to return to this place. Now, Carter made sure that Maynard understood that the unhappiness of his men had less to do with hardship than with the continuing frustration of not being permitted to march back to their home territory. It was a frustration that Carter himself shared. Our men are most anxious to return to eastern Tennessee, not so much to see their families as to drive the rebels from the country. We are all inclined to think that help will be deferred until it's too late to save our people. This ought not to be so. For several days, the confusion and frustration continued, made worse by the sluggishness of communications. The roads were so battered by rain and traffic that soon even lightly traveling couriers couldn't get messages from one point to another earlier than the following day, and sometimes the day after that. And no sooner did the brigade arrive back at Camp Calvert than Carter received an alarm from Barbersville that a 5,000-strong rebel force had advanced to Flatlick, a mere 32 miles away. Surveying his own force, Barely 2,000 able men occupying a vulnerable position with no artillery. He put the men on alert and determined to move toward Somerset before an attack came. On the morning of November 19th, he sent an urgent dispatch to Thomas informing him of the situation and his decision to withdraw. On the 20th, Thomas replied he could give no support, explaining with suppressed chagrin that he was under Buell's orders to fall back all the way to Lebanon and to consolidate his command there. At this point, all Thomas could give him was a measure of liberty to act. You must exercise your best judgment. Later in the afternoon of the 20th, Carter received more accurate reports of the enemy force in advance and concluded that earlier alarms were, and he's, as he said it, much exaggerated. In his update, he assured Thomas that he was no longer under duress and it would probably not now be necessary to withdraw immediately. Even a more timely and orderly withdrawal, however, would require the destruction of food and supplies that couldn't be transported for lack of wagons. And he added this reminder for Thomas. Recruits are arriving almost every day from East Tennessee. We have no arms to put into their hands. The Union men coming to us represent the arrival of the Federal forces. They are all ready to join them and do their part towards the deliverance of their native land. Union camps are already forming in some of the counties, and unless help soon reaches them, as they have but little ammunition, they will be scattered or destroyed. Carter closed his letter expressing the hope of seeing you soon here. 
Thomas, however, was occupied with fulfilling Buell's orders, orders that seemed to have little to do with the situation on the ground. He had planned to go by way of Columbia, but that route proved impractical, and going north was not much easier, and he had only been able to make it as far as Stanford. As of the 21st, he was still expecting Carter to evacuate London by Saturday the 23rd, informing Buell that delays in their withdrawal were aggravated because the roads were in wretched condition and the animals are very much reduced. On Thursday, November 21st, Carter sent Lieutenant Colonel James Spears with a detachment of more than 600 men from the 1st East Tennessee down the road toward Flat Lake to do reconnaissance and, if possible, to intercept horse-mounted raiders on their thieving expeditions, as he called it. He also took time that evening to write to Horace Maynard that letter in which he described the near mutiny of the previous week. General Thomas has left Crab Orchard, and we are here to look out for ourselves, he wrote forlornly. I have no information as to the plans of General Buell, but he predicted that they would soon be marching to Somerset, which means he already had some indication of Zollicoffer's movements. Always mindful of time slipping away from the Patriots in East Tennessee, he pleaded, Can you not get those in power to give us a few more men and permission to make at least an effort to save our people? It is our duty. Later that evening, Spears returned with the report that the enemy had withdrawn from this section of Kentucky, leaving only a token force at Cumberland Gap, the bulk of them having apparently moved west toward Jamestown, Tennessee. If the Confederate pullback quickened any hopes of being able to breach the Cumberland Gap and begin the liberation of East Tennessee, they were dashed the next morning on receipt of the order from Thomas, dated November 20th, directing Carter to break camp in London and proceed to Columbia. If Carter was perturbed, however, he didn't complain to his superior and, aware of his men's growing reputation for crankiness, made sure that Thomas had no doubts that his men were ready to move to any point where there is a prospect of meeting our common enemy. What a curious expression, our common enemy. One would expect it to be used with an ally, not a superior. But then on Friday, Buell changed his mind and issued a communique instructing Thomas to let Carter's regiment stay put if they have not started to move. Thomas received it on Saturday and immediately forwarded the command to Carter, accompanied by a note that the order to break up camp was based upon orders received from department headquarters, a rare and subtle indication of Thomas's own irritation with Buell's ever-changing orders. At last, on Monday the 25th, Carter received the dispatch that Thomas had relayed on the 23rd, reversing the order to depart London. The order to remain was received with general satisfaction, he reported to the general. Another understatement by the acting brigadier. Elsewhere, he says, all were elated. He added that most of the men who deserted on the night of the 13th were back in the ranks. I'm hoping that there still might be an operation into Tennessee, he helpfully informed the general that the Cumberland Gap now had only a token force of rebels, and he also urged Thomas to hasten the paymaster forward the single best way to restore troop morale. Carter again mentioned the plight of the bridge burners. His concern for them was genuine and personal, and also reflected the heart of his Tennesseans. On that same Monday, he wrote to Horace Maynard, If something is not done, and that speedily, our people will be cut up and ruined. A column should be ordered to move into eastern Tennessee, 
one detailed for that purpose and no other, to go without reference to any other movement with the specific object of relieving our people, simply on account of their loyalty and as though it were entirely disconnected with any military advantages. As for the men, many would sooner perish in battle than turn their back toward the Tennessee line again. Their impatience for a move on East Tennessee was mirrored in Washington. On the 27th, Buell received a wire from a perplexed McClellan, demanding, What is the reason for concentration of troops at Louisville? I urge movement at once on eastern Tennessee unless it is impossible. McClellan's follow-up letters were more expansive, using every means short of preemptive command to urge Buell toward making this move. He even included copies of the letters Carter had sent to Maynard, which he had received from the hand of Lincoln with notes to, please read and consider. This could not have endeared the brigadier-in-waiting to his commanding general, but there is no direct evidence that Buell retaliated against his junior officer or that he reacted at all. Buell, however, was a master at parrying pointed questions and advisory directives with long, foggy, detailed packed replies in which he led the challenger to believe that he had won his point while he continued to follow his own course regardless. He had no intention of invading East Tennessee, but it was not politically expedient to say so explicitly, so instead he experimented with different ways of explaining his plans without actually saying that they didn't include the immediate liberation of East Tennessee. His eyes were firmly fixed on Nashville, and he didn't want to be sucked into letting his army be a mere support vehicle, whether for McClellan in the East or Halleck in the West. Zollicoffer returns. In the meantime, Felix Zollicoffer regrouped from his setback the month before and shifted his attention westward. The wilderness road was effectively blocked, so he would take a way that would bypass the wilderness altogether. Since Buell had pulled his command north of the Cumberland River, Zollicoffer could take his forces fairly deep into Kentucky west of the mountain ridge with little or no resistance. From November 20th on, there were steady reports of threatening movements, and as early as the 27th, his advanced cavalry had made camp in the neighborhood of Mill Springs. At this point, there was only one regiment standing in his path, and it was by no means a crack unit. W.A. Hoskins, 4th Kentucky Volunteers, encamped outside Somerset. Thomas asked for Buell's permission to send General Sheff with half a brigade from Lebanon to reinforce Hoskins. Buell obliged, including with his orders vague instructions to be at all times ready to advance. Meanwhile, Hoskins was feeling the urgency, very much like Colonel Garrard at Wildcat, only with not nearly as defensible a position. Not only did he send repeated requests to Thomas for artillery, but he also sent a request for reinforcements directly to Carter in London. Wolf Carter, of course, could not relieve Hoskins without orders and so he relayed the request to Thomas. And Thomas, in turn, had to get permission from Buell for every move outside of the standing orders. Buell got it fixed in his mind early on, however, that Zollicoffer was headed to Bowling Green to head link up with Buckner, although he did acknowledge that the Confederates might try by demonstrations to drive us from Somerset or even attack there if we're not watchful. He had placed Thomas in command of a full division in a territory, 
but he had also forbidden him to move his forces without orders from Louisville. In other words, for the time being, Thomas's division was little more than a list of active units widely scattered and lacking cohesion. Meanwhile, the Tennessean situation could hardly have been more confusing. Carter's brigade, now identified as the 12th Brigade, at least now they had an official designation, comprised his 1st and 2nd East Tennessee Volunteers plus the 31st Ohio and the 6th Kentucky Infantry. Although it was under Thomas's command, yet as late as December 2nd, Buell was still sending independent orders directly to Carter, essentially anchoring him as a sentry along the Wilderness Road out of the way of any significant action. Perhaps this was Buell's disguised way of retaliating against Carter for going over his head and complaining to Lincoln and McClellan via Maynard. Even so, Carter didn't mind, because he still hoped to march from there into East Tennessee. Thomas commended Carter's restraint and his adherence to the chain of command, and acknowledged Buell's intention to keep the 12th Brigade at London for a while longer. He also assured Carter that if his men were moved, it would not be to the rear, but laterally to Somerset, which was increasingly becoming a point under threat. Meanwhile, Carter wrote again to Thomas, who was now at Lebanon, this time requesting the go-ahead to move to Somerset, for a number of reasons. The chief, of course, was the massing of rebels in that zone. But there were others, including the sickness of our men and the increased malignity of disease. Finding forage for animals in the exhausted region of London was also rapidly becoming a critical issue. They sorely needed to move to a less depleted, less disease-ridden neighborhood. In the same letter, he noted that earlier in the day, Wednesday, December 4th, that his brother, Colonel James Carter, the commanding officer of the 2nd East Tennessee, had departed for headquarters at Louisville to see if he can get arms for the recruits of his regiment. While there, he sought a meeting with the commanding general regarding the status of the plan for East Tennessee. So on the 8th, Buell acknowledged in a wire to Horace Maynard that he had personally met with Carter and hoped that the colonel was satisfied of his concern for the patriots of East Tennessee. It's probable that the colonel's hopes for his long ride to Louisville greatly exceeded what he came away with. Parenthetically, it is also quite possible that Buell thought that he had spoken to Samuel Carter and not to his younger brother, James. See, the idea is not far-fetched, really, and it Indeed, it seems likely. Many generals kept a professional distance from their subordinates, but Buell engaged in that practice to an extreme. He seldom saw anyone below his division commanders and kept such meetings as he had, even with them, cordial but brief. And if Buell and his staff did in fact confuse James Carter with Samuel Carter, it would explain a minor mystery. The official records of the Battle of Mill Springs that Buell sent to the War Department referred to Colonel Samuel P. Carter as the commander of Thomas's 12th Brigade. Samuel P. Carter never held the rank of colonel, either officially or informally. He entered the war as a U.S. Navy lieutenant on special duty, and in January of 1862 he was still awaiting official confirmation of his rank as Brigadier General of Volunteers. In the meantime, he was acting presumptively in that rank and was so recognized by his subordinates, his peers, and his immediate superior, George Thomas. It would seem that Buell and or his staff was ignorant of his rank, to the point of ignoring statements in his reports, 
and in those of others. The most generous interpretation of this slight is that there must have been a misunderstanding somewhere in the Army of the Cumberland headquarters. I think that Buell, and possibly his staff as well, thought that when Colonel James Carter came to headquarters, they were talking to the brigade commander himself. Indeed, if they hadn't, he might not have even gotten an audience with the commanding general. Well, that's my opinion, and I think it's true. At Camp Goggin, southwest of Somerset, Alban Sheff was on the edge. Confederates began shelling Hoskins' camp from across the river at Somerset in a fairly obvious diversionary attack and Sheff realized they would not attempt a direct assault here, but would cross further downstream. He now had reliable information that a large Confederate force was massing at Mill Springs, accumulating boats and barges, and was preparing to cross the river. As early as Monday, December 2nd, he began taking steps to block such a move, dispatching a company from the 1st Kentucky Cavalry to a point opposite Mill Springs. They were to monitor Zollicoffer and send a report immediately if a crossing should be attempted. He then ordered the 17th Ohio and a battery of artillery to get a head start in that direction while he prepared to bring the 38th Ohio down to Somerset. The 38th, however, was woefully short of ammunition, so he began to look around for alternatives. Zollicoffer, indeed, was determined to send his forces to make camp on the north bank of the Cumberland, both to the surprise of the Federals and to the consternation of his superiors. Solikoffer's brigade had been consolidated with the division under the command of the hard-drinking Major General George B. Crittenden, a Kentuckian and West Point graduate who was the elder son of a U.S. loyal politician. Solikoffer had already marched his brigade up from Jamestown, Tennessee, to the hamlet of Mill Springs, which is on the south side of the Cumberland River. Crittenden approved Solikoffer's position and directed other regiments his way and ordered him to hold there. His intention was to follow the pattern of Albert Sidney Johnston's strategy, drawing the Federals into making a first strike across the river so that he could trap them with the river at their back. Mill Springs provided a commanding view and good lines of fire from a bluff overlooking the river. The journalist-turned-general, however, disliked the hilly environs of Mill Springs. He thought the more level ground on the north side of the Cumberland would provide a better winter camp, so he ignored the order and decided to cross anyway. Sheff's plan to intercept Zollicoffer and disrupt his river crossing was already behind the pace, but it was rendered completely hopeless by the cowardice of the officer in command of the advance cavalry. After running into some scout pickets from the rebel army, Captain Boston Dillon decided his assignment was unreasonably hazardous and made camp barely two miles south of Fishing Creek, not less than six miles away from where he was supposed to go. Not only did he not fulfill his reconnaissance mission, he didn't even set out security pickets. Shep's infantry caught up with them on the morning of the 5th, and Shep himself showed up before noon with his captain of engineers, intending to determine where he needed to set a battery to prevent the rebels from crossing. Instead, he was shocked to see the 17th Ohio retreating across the creek without having fired a shot, and with Zollicoffer already safely across the river and setting up a perimeter at Beach Grove. Furious, he blamed the cavalry officer for his predicament, put him under arrest, and sent him to Louisville for court-martial. He could not now attack Zollicoffer with the force at hand, however. He would have to remain encamped at Somerset and wait for reinforcements. 
Zolly's New Folly At Beech Grove, Zolly Coffer began to fortify and make winter camp. He was confident of his decision. From this camp, as a base of operations, I hope in mild weather to penetrate the country toward London or Danville, he wrote Johnston, apparently unaware that he had just made a terrible blunder. He had violated not only his orders, but also every sound military doctrine of deployment. With the river at his own back and with limited exit routes, he risked being cornered. Moreover, he assumed that the river would be a channel of ready supply, but the unusually heavy early winter rain soon brought the river to flood stage and made it impassable. Cut off from their supply line, Zollicoffer's troops soon had to scavenge for food. That did not endear them to the locals, whose livestock laid up stores and miscellaneous tools and supplies were taken. The neighbor folk also did not appreciate the preachy propaganda pamphlets sent out by the former newspaper editor from Nashville. Now, why Zollicoffer made his decision has been the subject of a good deal of speculation. Some have suggested that he was still stung by Zolly's folly, the wilderness road invasion that was stopped at Wildcat, and that he had something to prove. Others speculate that he resented the promotion over him of someone he probably regarded as a drunkard and wanted to make his own move before General Crittenden arrived to countermand him. Still others observe that he had little experience as a soldier, let alone as a commander, and, despite his zeal, was out of his depth. And there's perhaps some truth in all of these points. Certainly his decision to cross was consistent with the aggressive character he had already shown in his months-long career as a general. Crittenden heard about Zollicoffer's move in Knoxville while in transit to his new commission and was appalled. He ordered Zollicoffer to withdraw back across the Cumberland to Mill Springs, but Zollicoffer decided to wait until he arrived so he could talk him out of it. By that time, the river flooding had hugely raised the risks of evacuation, making that option much less desirable. And the generals opposing him were unable to capitalize quickly on Zolly's new folly for a number of reasons, inclement weather chief among them. It rained almost every day, and on some days it stormed, and that impeded not only the movement of the army, but also communications and intelligence gathering. It took several days and multiple reports to convince Buell of the size and seriousness of Zollicoffer's threat. Meanwhile, he was still tinkering with his command structure. George Thomas's first division was not even a week old when on December 5th, Buell issued a baffling special order detaching Carter's 12th Brigade from Thomas, with instructions for him to report directly to his own headquarters. Albin Sheff, however, continued to send pleas for reinforcements to Thomas, and reverting to the former chain of command, Sheff directly ordered Carter to come from Lebanon. Carter, however, under orders from Buell to stay put in London, prudently waited to be released before he moved. Due to the difficulty of communications, there was confusion between the commanders regarding who was moving and who wasn't. And adding to the confusion were rumors that a large Confederate force was massing at the Cumberland Gap, preparing for a major invasion of eastern Kentucky. Wires passed between Thomas and Buell, and finally Buell permitted Thomas to release Carter's brigade to Somerset. But to send no more until you report to me. Shep's force was sufficient at first. Reversing the previous day's directives, the 12th Brigade, which included the 2nd Tennessee, was reattached to Thomas's division. 
Then adding to the confusion, Carter didn't receive the original order detaching the 12th until a full week later, well after he had deployed to Somerset. And then the brigade was detached again on December 19th. It's not clear if that last order went through or when the 12th Brigade was finally reattached to the 1st Division. These were paper issues of little concern to the troops, but there's always a trickle-down effect when their officers are not sure from whom they're taking their orders. By Saturday, December 7th, the Tennesseans started out on the muddy westward road to Somerset, a march of about 35 miles. Thomas had also previously ordered the 31st Ohio to Shep's aid, but Buell held them up and they remained at Camp Dick Robinson. He still did not regard Zollicoffer as a serious threat, just one of many roving bugbears. His message to Thomas was, The affairs at Somerset are annoying, but I do not intend to be diverted more than necessary from more important purposes, undoubtedly the massing of his forces for a major offensive focused on Nashville. According to Private Jack Snow, the 2nd Tennessee's A Company was one of the advance units of the brigade, so the road Alvis and Will Hicks trod was not as spoiled as it might have been for those further back in the column. It was not a pleasant march, but neither was it totally miserable. The weather was cloudy and chilly, but the rain had let up, and the road, though muddy, was passable. There were some steep and rough hills to cross, but they were hardly comparable to the arduous ascent to Wildcat. The only real delay was crossing the Rock Castle River, whose Swift flow and narrow ford made crossing slow and hazardous and stacked up the column for many hours. On Monday afternoon, Carter's Tennesseans arrived at their destination and made camp about three miles east of Somerset. Sheff was not satisfied, believing that he was still outnumbered by as much as two to one. Zollicoffer, meanwhile, spent the days building a secure winter camp with breastworks on the perimeter and with a sturdy log cabin set of barracks for the men. His pickets regularly tested chefs, and there were small skirmishes, but no major movements. Communication and supply became acute problems for Shep, partly because of weather and road conditions, and partly because of interference from enemy patrols. Messages sent to Thomas took up to four days. Among the problems for the federal commanders was the issue of contraband the euphemism they used for fugitive slaves. Occasionally one came in who supplied intelligence regarding enemy numbers and position, but most were simply supplicants for shelter. Sensitive to the fact that Kentucky was a slave state, Thomas's standing order was to forbid receiving fugitive slaves into a Union camp. Carter appealed. Some who had escaped from secessionists and rebel officers were being employed as servants by his own officers. He sent for, and received, clearance from Buell's headquarters for exceptions. It was not emancipation so much as confiscation, but it foreshadowed Lincoln's proclamation in that the exception only applied to slaves escaped from rebels. After many conflicting reports of Confederate numbers and position, on December 18th, Shep determined to conduct a reconnaissance in force, with his own brigade taking one road and Carter's taking another. Both columns had clashes with cavalry pickets about two and a half miles from the rebel camp, but neither side suffered serious casualties. The attack was not pressed and no tactical advantage was gained. The exercise was not totally without worth. Shep and Carter learned that the terrain greatly limited the usefulness of artillery and saw firsthand that Zollicoffer was well fortified and could not easily be dislodged. 
Also, the Tennessee volunteers got to participate in a maneuver with the potential for battle. Although the long day of marching out and back with no engagement probably did little to relieve their pent-up frustrations. As Carter's brigade settled into their regimental camps, the 2nd Tennessee found themselves in the neighborhood of the farm owned by the heirs of one of Kentucky's most illustrious military figures, the late General Jesse Richardson. Richardson's army career began with service in the West under George Rogers Clark during the Revolutionary War. He rose from private to brigadier general in the Kentucky militia and served as the first senator from Pulaski County. The farm was being run now by Richardson's grandson, David. Undoubtedly, Alvis Hicks at this time made the acquaintance of some of David's adult children, including his unmarried daughter, Margaret, about a year older than Alvis. But of course, Alvis was married and had a child, so nothing going on there. First Christmas the week leading up to Christmas was quiet in the Somerset area. There were occasional visual contacts with the enemy on scouting rounds, but little or no shooting. Two days before Christmas, Samuel Carter wrote to Thomas concerning a still-absent company commander from the 2nd Tennessee, Captain David Fry, one of the agents in the bridge-burning operation. Detailed for special service in October last by your orders and left for Tennessee in company with my brother, Reverend W.B. Carter. I fear he has been captured by the rebels, and if not, that he is so enveloped by them as to leave but little hope of his being able to return to his regiment. His company is, of course, still without a captain. I wish your advice as to whether it will or will not be advisable under the circumstances to have the position filled by a new appointment. I write at the request of the colonel of the 2nd Regiment, namely James Carter. The general approved of the replacement, and on 1st January of 1862, a 20-year-old who had enlisted in October as a private, John Sneed, was promoted to captain and commanded the company until that November when he transferred to another unit. He was mortally wounded at the Battle of Stones River. By that time, in late 1862, Captain Fry had made his way back to the regiment after his months of adventures behind enemy lines and resumed command of his old company. The 2nd Tennessee celebrated Christmas at their camp near Somerset. On this first Christmas of the war, the mood was melancholy, but not terribly tense. The camp was not on high alert, and the men not on duty wandered about the neighborhood more or less freely. Paul Grauger retained a vivid memory of that day. On Christmas Day, I felt somewhat lonesome as I had always enjoyed myself at home with my friends before. So, to pass the time, I went to town, where I saw a great crowd of soldiers thronged at the whiskey cellar. They demanded the owner to open it, to which he did not comply, but reported the impetuosity of the soldiers to the officers, upon which they immediately ordered the liquor to be poured out. So I saw nineteen barrels of whiskey emptied and running down the streets like a branch in wet weather, and the soldiers was again knocked out of their Christmas treats, only what few filled their canteens as it run down the streets. He wryly adds, I myself didn't fall short by it, as I got what I wanted from a citizen who had just come in from the country. It was a welcome change from the confusion and exhaustion of the camp at London. While Christmas may have brought on fresh waves of homesickness, 
the prospect of an armed confrontation with Zollicoffer reinvigorated their sense of purpose. Maybe now something was about to break. This has been Insight with Gary Nation. Tune in for Episode 8, Finally, A Real Fight. Until then, thanks for listening.